Welcome to Creative Wally, episode 33. My name is DK, the founder and producer of this unique video podcast. We can check us out on creativewally.com. You can find all the ways to subscribe. You're listening to the audio version, which is fair enough, and you're very welcome here. In this episode, we get to chat with Cynthia Hoonfield, CEO and founder of Ifite Biotechnology, and also Mark Westerby, a producer and long-time creative. In this chat, we cover everything from botanical medicine right through to traditional plant healing, uh, botany, the whole kind of pharmac infrastructure, documentary filmmaking, studio production, technology, and creativity. I think you're going to really enjoy this one. But before we get into it, a big shout out to our producing partner. That's John O. Tucker, who produces the film of all this. And you can find him over at Empire Films. And also big thanks to David over at Flash Dog Studio, who hosts us for the Creative Wally video shoot. So let's get into another courageous conversation with bold humans. Enjoy. What are your favorite names? What are your favorite names? If you have any. Mm. Favourite names. Really good question. It is a good question. I got Welsh ones in my brain. Mm. Like Marianedd, or Rianedd, or Esloin. Or I got a cousin called Yolo. It's all very well-sounding, beautiful yeah. written names as well. Yeah. I so, guess that's the thing, right? A name, to me, is, is how it sounds as well. Mm. Like, not just how you see it or how it's written. Yeah. Yeah. And on the person. Yeah. Some people fit their names, some people don't. It's like, yeah, it must be tough having babies. Like, what do you, it's just like, make it up as you go along, right? Yeah. My wife's name is, is Paula. She's from Brazil, but it's written Paula in, in New Zealand. You know, that's how we say it. And we've had this discussion a few times around names that sound amazing in Portuguese or in Spanish. Mm. And we New Zealanders just, kind of bastardise them <laughs> and they sound very ordinary. Does you know, she spend I, her time saying it's Paula, sorry, not Paula? She, when she first came to New Zealand, mm. she would for a little while, yeah. but she, in the most part, she's given up because it's much easier just to go, it's Paula, that's fine, yeah. especially on a phone call, for example, where there's not a lot of context. But like, for example, she would talk about, um, she really likes the name um, Artur, uh, which is Arthur, mm. and I hate the name Arthur. Like it just doesn't. It sounds really horrible to me. It's the T and the H in the middle somewhere. Yeah. But the mm. way she says it, it sounds amazing. So fascinating. Yeah. Mm. How about you on names, Cynthia? Um, I think I'll go with Evite because it's mm. it's also that sound difference that you're talking about. Um, yeah that a, a lot of people, well, I didn't realize <laughs> when I named my company this way, um, that, that people are not used to the little stripe on the E, on the mm-hmm. end. Um, because growing up in, in Europe, you, yeah. you grow up with the, these different types of sounds from different countries and mm. pronunciations. Um, so Evite means um, living one. It comes from the Hebrew of Eva. Um, and, and yeah, it looks so French, though. It's uh, it, yeah, it's um, th- th- really, really depends where mm. where your your pronunciation comes from. But yes, it's uh, it it's always abbreviation. I think I think that's where it comes down to. Right. It's um, it's a very ancient name. It's 
but yeah, it's, you don't really see it in this language anymore. But cool. um, but yeah, also the same same thing with sound that I hadn't realized. So, mm. so let's like, talk about. Sorry, I, like, I was going to say I like the way it looks too. Um, yeah, it's visually. very, it's visually, it's beautiful with the ease at each end, and and then to me, it sounds fresh. Mm. Mm. I don't know, like um, like Evian water, like does yes. in, in a way, like yeah. <laughs> but interesting yeah. to hear what it's what it actually means. Mm. And your studio name, yes, spelled T A I A. Yes, could you pronounce it? It's called Tire Studios. Yeah, which is a Maori name. Uh, and we named it Tyre because it's called the, the, the building is called Tyre Hall, right. um, which used to, it used to be a um, Masonic lodge, uh, and so we just couldn't really think of anything off the bat, so we decided <laughs> Tyre Studios would be it. But the funny thing is, we're right next to a tyre shop, Tony's Tyres, <laughs> and so whenever you say it, people go, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah you." So as in like a tyre studio. And so the, sometimes you have to explain yourself. That's, but it's a good way to start a story. So mm. is there a particular meaning to it? Well, when I was looking it up, um, there's no Māori meaning for the word tyre by itself. It forms part of tyreha, you know, to strike uh, with, with the weapon. Okay. Um, and in Indian it means light, which is great for us in a studio mm. environment. So... Uh, that's as far as I got. I've actually spoken to some people I know who are Masons who have familiarity with the hall and they've been trying to find out the, the evolution of the name. Ah, interesting. So, yeah, one day we might get the answer. Yeah, and uncover and go, oh, we better change our name because <laughs> yeah, it could go the wrong way. <laughs> but I'm sure it won't. It'll be fun. Yeah. Let's talk about your studio and both of you, what you're doing. You mentioned Ithvite. Let's stick with you just because you started it. What are you doing at the moment with your studio? How would you describe what you do and what it does? Uh, well, it's an extension of, of what myself and my two business partners were doing in our careers. We all come from various parts of, of the screen industry. Uh, Simon is a, an animation supervisor, uh, mostly works for Weather FX, uh, and Ike is a stunt coordinator, um, and he's a bit of an entrepreneur as well and does all sorts of other things. The two of them also work a lot in motion capture. Uh, and then me as a producer slash whatever you want after that. Um, and we, they, they, they have been renting spaces off me over the years and, and we thought, we kept getting asked for spaces for people to be able to do, shoot different things in or, um, you know, space can be at a premium sometimes, mm. especially central Wellington and yeah. other central parts of cities around the country. So... We started looking for a space, and uh, we found that it was a little bit run down, but it had lots of character. Mm. So it was about 18 months ago now we we took the lease on that and uh, started tarting it up. Um, and so primarily we 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 did it for ourselves in a way to give ourselves less excuse to um, not make our own projects. Mm. If we have a space to work in, then then you know there's an impetus to do something. Uh, but also, uh, you know, me, DK, I'm quite community-minded as well, and I really want to, to make it a community hub where we can provide a space for people in the industry to, to come and make their own work and to meet and talk and, mm. and do those things. So we've, we've built a motion capture studio downstairs. Uh, I built a podcast booth. Mm -hmm. So I, um, 
purpose-built booth and there's another space out the front that gets used for castings, auditions, workshops, all sorts of stuff. And good coffee. There we go. <laughs> Which in, in the film industry you can't not have. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Are you seeing really the community nice. engaging with it? Are you seeing absolutely. like a good bunch of people <clears throat> yeah. coming through? Yeah, we haven't really advertised much. We've just been yeah. using our own connections. And we've found a lot of the industry, the guilds and uh, a lot of the membership organisations will do their regular workshops there. Like right. women in film and television come and do a lot of workshops. Uh, the Screen Producers Association, Directors and Editors Guild. Um, and that just brings people through the building and it adds life to it. Uh, we have loads of castings. Um, so I've got a okay. good relationship with casting agents. And mm. uh, so they, they have auditions there regularly. So that's great. That's lovely. Yeah, yeah it's really nice to see. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, for establishing it. <clears throat> yeah, it's a lot of work. And, and of course, last year being the year that it was for us all, mm. it's probably not the ideal year to start a studio. Um, and we had hoped to, ha- to we had hoped to have it open earlier than it was, but yeah. um, uh, well, you know we, we got there exactly. Positive, Something to to work thinking. towards. Yeah, that's yes. right. That's right. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it's been a good process. Mm. Yeah. Sounds great. Yes. Yes. Um, so, are the particular products that you that you were looking forward to working on? Um, I guess the thing, Cynthia, about the work that I do is I love the variety. Of it, I probably get a little bit bored by doing the same old thing over and over again. So, I seek out variety in all the work that I do. Um, and to me, it's it sounds cliche, but it really is about the people that mm. I work with to make it interesting. Uh, because you know, you uh, especially for the long projects, you work with them for a long time, yeah. and you have to have good relationships and get on with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've we've been doing some motion capture sessions downstairs lately. So that's where they put the suits on with all the dots and yes. run around and Great. do stuff. So we've done a couple of sessions with uh, game companies who are developing games. Um, and we did a session with, uh, we had a workshop recently down there. And that's a lot of fun. That's yeah. that's, that's cool. Um, and personally, I, I built the podcast booth because mm-hmm. I like, I'm like DK, I'm curious. I like to talk to people and a part of what I do in my day job with the behind the scenes work is interviewing Mm -hmm. Um, and I really wanted to do an extension of that and just talk to interesting people. So that's my project, which I haven't yet got off the ground. Ah. I was going to say, but now it's on film. So (laughs) got to be, you're committed. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well, you kind of do this as your side job as well with the radio hosting that you do your Saturday morning. Stuff. It's not I like thought your, your voice sounded very familiar. Yeah, <laughs> when it came in here. yeah. yeah. Wow. you've been I'm, doing that for a while. The Saturday morning. Camp. I have for about fourteen years on yeah. Radioactive. Yeah, specific arts and culture show. Arts and yeah, it's caffeine and aspirin. It's an arts yeah. and culture show. Uh, but I get asked all the time if I'm Jesse Mulligan because we sound <laughs> the same. Uh, people r- would ring the station and ask if. If it's him on the radio, oh right, it goes to and that. his his younger brother Robbie came to work for Radioactive, and that was the first thing he said to me. So it's <laughs> quite it interesting, like my bro. Yeah, so we're we're obviously voice doppelgangers, but so a lot of people think that that there's a similarity <laughs> there. Yeah, you were saying that you were doing interviews behind the behind the scenes as well. Is that for for movies? Yeah, so it, it's an aspect of um, working in film and television that you don't 
see a lot of, I suppose, but you do see the product of it. And in the old days, it used to be the, the DVD extras mm. that you'd get on a DVD. There'd yeah. be the behind the scenes and little interviews. Nowadays, it's more social media clips, um, uh, set tours and things like that. So we would work with a film or television program. I'll work with the producers. I'll understand what the script is or if it's a documentary, who the, the characters are look at the treatment of that and then work out a schedule with the producer and we go on set and we film some behind the scenes footage and then uh, we effectively then, and we, then we do some interviews with cast and crew and I just ask them pertinent questions about what it's like to be involved in that show and working with other characters and actors and then we effectively bank that footage for about a year until the film or the TV project is ready for release. Oh, yeah. Of course, yes. Uh, and then there's this mad rush towards the end to then edit that into something that is mm. comprehensive and, and, and get it out there into the world. So yeah. uh, it's a really strange process. But the thing I like about it the most is that we, we get to work with a project from almost its inception mm. right up to release. So we get that arc of, of the storytelling and mm. the way I see marketing is it's kind of this, this parallel line that sits along the project, you know, and you, you're marketing from day one and you're thinking about stories alongside this main story of whatever that is. So it's a really interesting process yeah. and I do love it. Yeah. And we've been doing trailers more as well now too. So that's, that's been fun. And you recently got shortlisted for that luminaries trailer I did, yeah. thing yeah. in my brain that triggered something then. Yeah. Yeah, what was that? Uh, it's the uh, World Trailer Awards. Oh, so that one was the Golden Trailer Awards. Golden Trailer yeah. Awards. Yeah, it's like an annual awards event where people who, who make uh, marketing materials for film and television mm. uh, enter their, their, their work. And their, cool. um, yeah, I was a finalist and won the Silver Award for the work that we did for Luminaries, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing. Um, I'd love to see it. I'm curious now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all, all online. Yeah. Correct. Mm. It's uh, already uh, following up on, on um, when, I, when I heard this interview was going to be with you, I was curious on what project you had worked on and um, went to IMDb and saw all these amazing documentaries and um, got really curious about all your projects, it's, uh, your documentaries and, and your your way of storytelling, you know, watching the trailer, it's like, ooh, which, which one am I going to watch first, <laughs> really? It's, uh, um, so, yeah, watched Women of the, of the Revolution. Mothers of the Revolution. Oh, Mothers of the Revolution, yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, it's, um, yeah, oh, it blew me away. It was, wow. It's, yeah, it's one of those documentaries that after it finishes, you, you need an hour at least, days <laughs> to process. Um, yeah, I just really admire how you ask questions and how you form that into your storytelling because yeah it was hard to choose so was was mothers of the revolution yes so. yeah yeah that was a project i was involved from a behind the scenes point of view but we i worked with the director briar march quite a lot uh, she was primarily asking the questions of those women uh, but Myself and my camera op went over to the UK with her and uh, we visited all these places around the UK and shot some amazing interviews with these women. And the thing I love about documentary, perhaps more so than feature or fiction, is, um, is, is that 
truth is stranger than fiction in many ways and people oh, yes. have amazing stories mm. and I had heard of uh, Green and Common before and mm. and knew a, a little bit of the surface of the history but it's not until you start working on a project and really mm. get into it that these stories come alive and uh, I think that's our prime responsibility as a storyteller is especially with this history is that things get lost in the past or get misconstrued and, and in this case you know the media were very one-sided in the way they reported this yes that uh, was back shocking in those ages it's... so this is an opportunity to to present the other side of the story mm. and 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 really just let audiences decide how they feel about it but yeah. also really really tell people that that it especially in, in terms of protest, this is about protest movement, mm. that um, it only takes one person to start mm. the flame. So it was an interesting project to work on. Yes, it was, it was, really, yeah, it was really beautiful art of storytelling, how, how they, the two pathways, what you're talking about, about what was shown in the news and what was actually happening for these women were like day and night. It was so, mm. so different. And... Mm. Like you're saying, how one person started this movement. Um, so I had to. I, I smiled when I when I heard this the part of the story when they went to explain that, you know, if um, if one person just brings six other people and those six other people do the same thing, then you know, it went by phone. And and it really it made me wonder with you know this day and age and, and social media, it's like how how would it look in 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 this time? You know, people post things on on Facebook and they. Put their opinion and, and kind of that's that's it you know to put their opinion out there and um and i wonder you know would, because it's so on topic that that whole story about you know the, the threat of a nuclear war and um i wonder how that's how that would take place in in this day and age would would people just post it on facebook or organize a protest or would that still have that impact it's uh it's a, such a good question because I think people feel like today that social media is enough. Like if they want to be um, involved or they want to state their, their agreement or disagreement with some kind of subject matter, that, that if you post something on Facebook and somebody shares it, then you've done your job. Mm. Whereas, as we well know, that doesn't get you quite far enough these yeah. days. You have to stand up and be counted. Yeah. And I think that was also the purpose of the film too. We talked a lot about you know, why tell the story of Mothers of the Revolution now? I mean, it's, it's decades old. Mm. Um, what's the relevance? And the relevance really came back to, we're dealing with all sorts of issues at the moment, climate change being one of the biggest ones. So how can we use that now? How is it being used in terms of protest these days to be able to bring these movements forward? Um, and you need to look at social media as a tool like the telephone was back then mm. to spread the message but incite action. And that's really what the key message of the film was, yeah. is that you need to do something more than just disagree with it. You need to actually spur into action. Yes. It's hard to see how today's generation will react to that. But then you look at the, the students who, who marched on Parliament here with climate change. Yeah. You know, it was one of the biggest protests seen in, in, in modern day in, in New Zealand. Yeah. So they clearly know how to organise themselves and make a difference when, yeah. when push comes to shove. Yeah. So I'm encouraged by that. There's an aspect to that story, though, is a, around uh, longevity of the protest, like how long they went for it, which social media is immediate. 
Yes. Right, and it's yes. quite perishable. Yes. Uh, These women were there quickly, for five years. Yeah. So there we go. Years, we yeah. got Seven not just years. action. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. wow. Not just action, but also time. Yes. So I wonder if those students uh, marched every weekend, what impact that would have. Probably a very different rather than one, even though one was great and yeah. illustrative. Mm. But yeah. that story was very different because of the length of time, it felt like. That's right. Of commitment. Yeah. Yes. As well. Yeah. Those students also have that advantage today, though, of building a platform with a march, but then using that via social media to make the message echo, a bigger echo chamber, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's opportunities there, I think, mm. to exploit movements that might happen. Yeah. And then you see these movements happening all around the world with climate change marches. And mm. so that builds a bigger echo chamber, yeah. which didn't quite exist back then. People, at the time, people did protest in other cities around the world about Greenham, but it fell on deaf ears mm. and it, well, they were p- fairly small protests in comparison. Yeah. In terms of a story, I want to linger on story just because I want to shift and we'll come back if that's all right, just to Cynthia and that's, her story. Yeah. If that's all right, just give you some time to chill out. Um, you started with talking about Evite and your business. If you were telling someone what that is all about, like the, the yeah, sorry, I was still in the pitch. middle of thinking about all that. Yeah, I will come back, <laughs> definitely, there, but I just so. wanted to balance yes. it, if that's yeah, okay. absolutely. Tell yeah. us about what you've been up to. So I, I think <laughs> what it has in common is, is I hear this in a song today, it's in, in the words, it's, it's not the waking, it's the rising. Mm. And, oh, yes. And that, yes. Yeah, I love yeah, that song. Yeah, that, that really resonated. Brilliant. Um, because that's, that's, that's kind of where my story starts. Mm as well because I was I was trying to find a solution for something and it wasn't there and you can just say okay well it's it's not here let's do something else or um, what were you trying so, to find yes well well yeah my story started a long time ago I guess it's uh, more than 30 years ago yes my my dad um, uh, became ill with sepsis um, I was 10 years old um, and and yet it that really quickly developed. Um, the antibiotics weren't working fast enough, and yeah, it's, um, the sepsis caused um, blood poisoning and left him permanently disabled. So it caused um, organ damage, brain damage, um, DNA damage, and um, yeah, that, that was. He went from an athlete and firefighter to you know in a wheelchair. To actually, when he came out of the hospital, he. He could only move his eyelids, he could only blink. Um, so he went through all the rehabilitation and, and yeah, as a, as a kid growing up, you know, people think that, you know, when you're 10, you don't pick up a lot of the adult conversation. And I think one of those key conversations was that meeting my mom had with one of his doctors in hospital. And um, they were saying that the antibiotics wasn't working and there was this new antibiotic. Um, but they had to get it signed off by the insurance company before they could try it because it was new, it was expensive. Mm. And so they were asking my mother for permission for to use this new antibiotic. And, and of course, you know, this, these things take time. You don't have that time when someone is so sick. And um, so that was, that was really, that, that really stick with me mm. um, growing up. I always wondered, like, what else could they have given him to not just help him survive, but you know, the quality of life on the other end. And um, so I was really curious about you know, how medicine development works. Um, and 
I decided to um, look at, at it from a traditional perspective as well. So I'm originally from the Netherlands um, and um, traditional medicine is, is a more integrated part of, uh, of life there. And I was really curious to find out what my ancestors used, what, um, you know, what other communities use for, for, for medicine development. And I started studying um, ethnobotany so the connection between the traditional uses um, of plant medicines and try to find out how, how this is traditionally used. And because it's often painted as, as really... Um, uh, that is, it is not an evolved way of doing medicine, but mm. this is like a thousand years of, of knowledge. Mm. You know, I think the, some of the oldest finds are 60,000 years old. Um, so yeah, I was really curious about that and um, decided to look at all these plant extracts and <clears throat> I found that to really you know, look at medicine development, I need to connect tradition and science. So I went forward studying um, postgrad clinical research here in New Zealand um, and then I thought, well, to actually get this into developing it, I need to connect tradition, science and business. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, I went forward studying an MBA and and use this as my product, as my, my driver. Um, but just taking a, a couple steps back, it's when I, I think it was in my second year of studying ethnobotany that my dad became ill again and I was looking at these plant extracts and, and how they could work together with antibiotics. Um, and so I asked his, his doctor and asked my dad and doctor, this, you know, if she don't really believe in that stuff, but if your dad is okay with that, you know, go ahead. And um, so he, he used his plant extract, and and um, it really it really showed the difference. It really helped to the point that the doctor came over and say, you know, this I could could tell something, you know, something in there helped helped him recover. And um, so yeah, and it encouraged me to um, to find out what what was causing that and, and perhaps I could you know, use this in, in the future for medicine development and yeah, that's, that's 15 years <laughs> 15 years wow. back yeah. Um, so yeah I've been looking at a whole range of plant extracts um, we've got a lot of knowledge about, about um, the active ingredients of, of, uh, um, of a small group of plant extracts I mean if you, if you look at the totality I think we only really research 10% of all traditional medicines Ten percent. Um, only ten percent. Yes. Yeah. So, That's nothing. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it it gets crazier. <laughs> it's uh, it's if you look at um, uh, the Amazon rainforest, for instance, we we researched about one, maybe two percent of of plant medicines from the from the Amazon rainforest, um, and twenty five percent of all pharmaceutical drugs are based on those findings. Right. And even today, we still use a lot of natural plant extracts in, in, in drug development. Um, but the primary focus is on single active constituents. Um, we've built this idea that if we found it, it actually was, was based on a, a, a German Nobel Prize winner that suggested that if we just take one active, main active constituent out and we can make this synthetically, then it's really good for quality control and, and you know, you can reproduce it. But yeah, we actually really limited the, the medicine's toolbox by, by um, well, the scope of the medicine's toolbox because you know, we can only make really simple molecules. Right. Um, when you say active molecule, then that correlates to one active issue in a body. 
Um, not specifically. Okay. The idea is that, that there is only one main active molecule in the plant responsible for medicinal action. Gotcha. So you while just... plants can have hundreds, yeah. uh, depending what oh, they're exposed okay. to and their growing conditions. And um, so it's, uh, it's really reductionary. So mm-hmm. by limiting it to one molecule, you're limiting the effect it can have on actually fixing the body. Potentially, and, yeah. And that way, because there's a lot of unknown molecules that are not being utilised, whereas a plant-based relief would actually um, encompass more of a, a greater area, in a, in a sense. Very likely. I mean, there's actually really little research about <laughs> about the re, about the comparison of a single active molecule and a, and a complex extract. Um, okay. I think the best the best example I can give you is um, uh, the work done by Professor um, Pamela Weathers um, and, and her work in, um, in the U.S., um, which is, um, I have to get back to what polytechnic she's working on, but Pamela Weathers showed, um, for instance, we, she did research into antimalarials. So you might know of the, the Nobel Prize-winning Artemisinin. They found mm-hmm. this 5,000-year-old mm-hmm. Chinese scripture, and it suggested, oh, this has to be a cold water extract. Um, and they found a way to extract a single active con- constituent from wormwood, artemisinin, to make an antimalarial. Um, but they couldn't actually make the molecule, so it still has to be extracted from the plant material. Right. Um, and what Pamela Weathers did and, and her team is that she, she actually looked at the whole, whole plant extract, how it was used by, by Chinese emperors, because mm. most Chinese emperors were, were herbalists um, back in the day and how it was used as an anti-malarial. And she found it's actually effective in drug-resistant malaria treatment, which suggests that very likely, that's very likely that, that the complex extract in this case is more effective it's than more the single active, yeah. active constituent. You, you touched on it before, but I'm curious. Um, if there's more effectiveness potentially in, the, in this area, then why has commercial medicine not gone down this track? Mm. But you, you mentioned too that it's probably more efficient to be able to isolate one molecule and production line something and spit it out. And you know, as we know, this world is full of drugs, and and the big, the main, the main driver for for capitalism is, is you know the commercial return. Mm. So why haven't these plant-based drugs been used more in that field? I think that's a that's a really good question. I'm I'm still trying to answer. Really, it's um, um, I think it's like you say. It's it's a lot more um, efficient. It's a lot easier to test. It's easier to test a single. Pretty much all your lab tests are based on one single active constituent. Right. Um, so it's it's much easier to test because you don't have that <coughs> that um, <coughs> pardon. You don't have that. Um, excuse me. Okay. <coughs> Um, you know exactly. Medicine that can help with <laughs> yes, yeah. I was just thinking of my propolis throat spray there. Yeah. There we go. It's um, yeah. It's, you, you don't have that, that that extra variable. You know, very exactly what you're testing, and and so having a single active and a single pathway and a single receptor site, you very clear perspective what's happening, what you're you know with what you're testing, um, but you know a lot of if you look at biochemistry. A lot of things in our body are very complex mechanisms, and mm-hmm. and they might need you know multiple receptor sites. It's uh, and and I think in it's often seen as messy, um, while it's actually really 
natural. Mm. It's just evolution, right? Mm. It's, um, so I think it's it's mainly for testing. It's it's because we had this idea we can I, extract that single active component and then make it chemically and then standardize the whole process and have that quality control. Um, I think this, after, over the years we're realizing, oh, actually, we're really limited. It's, um, we're only using 2% of what the world has to offer for medicine development. Yeah, that's bonkers. And, yeah, and there's, bonkers. It, it really is, right? It's I mean, crazy. Yeah. So going back to your story and tying it back in, where are <clears> you <throat> at right now with Evite? What's it doing and what's it intending to do? Yes, sorry, I had a lot of diversions there, didn't I? No, no, it's good. Mm-hmm. I'm just, um, yeah, yes. just exciting all that story. But what about now? Yes, so um, it went all the way from helping my father overcome a second bout of sepsis 15 mm-hmm. years ago to f- trying to find out what was responsible in this plant extract mm-hmm. and, and finding out that, that actually this plant when it feels like it's getting attacked, that it starts protecting itself and starts making this whole range of completely new molecules um, and trying to recreate it in the lab and, and use that for, for medicine development. Mm-hmm. So, it's, um, so that's, that's what we're, we're working on now. It's, so it's um, a biotech company, which is so rock and roll, I think. Oh, yeah. Yes. We're on a biotech Just, company. Of course you do. Sounds cool. So it sounds better than drug lords, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds cool too, though. Yeah. <laughs> that does sound cool. So have you commercialised any of your products? So we're, we're working on the research at the moment. Okay. So, yes. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, a, long, it's a long research process. Yeah. I mean, the, there's a big difference in identifying a completely new active molecule and taking that all the way through the research and to the market, which takes about 15 years in general, from identifying in the lab that this cures cancer. Why does it take to, so long? Um, toxicology, um, what we found is that, or what scientists find, I should say, is that if you take a single active constituent out, they're actually having a lot of toxicology issues down the line. Okay. Because you, you work from the lab and then to animal studies and then to clinical studies. You don't really know what you're starting at right in the beginning. It's great for a patent because it's a completely yeah. novel invention. You can completely own it. But you have to put a lot of money in to get it from a single you know, bench test of showing potential all the way to, yeah, to the other end. Um, the great thing with botanical medicine development is that we already have quite a bit of existing knowledge on how something works, how safe it is, dosage range, existing animal studies. Um, so it would take about four or five years to take it from a test all the way to commercialization. It's like a third reduction in time oh yes and in terms of what what active ingredients are we looking at when it comes to what you're specifically focused on um so it's it's a range so we we stress the plant to produce a range of active ingredients what's the plant um so it's made from ginger ginger yes Gotcha. and um we focus on one main active ingredient from the ginger that's produced when it's being stressed Um, but of course, there's a whole array of active constituents. We just know that this active ingredient needs to be on a certain level, um, which we know from existing animal trials that, that can create better treatment outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is specifically focused on sepsis, but we're actually not testing on sepsis. Um, we're, we're focusing on the treatment of interstitial cystitis, which is bladder pain. 
um, which has very similar biomarkers at sepsis, but yeah. people are not as, as sick. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, coming in with a completely new medicine um, to very, very sick people, it's, uh, you, you can't double-blind placebo control yeah. that. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So being able to show that in a population that is not as, as sick and showing its efficiency mm. um, will put us in the first step forward um, to finally finding a, a, a way, well, that's, that's the aim, to finding a way of better treatment outcomes in sepsis. Um, the treatment hasn't changed in the last 30 years. So That's crazy. And what's the scale of sepsis across the world? Do we, does anybody know? Right. 50 million people per year. Mm. Wow. Um, that's massive. 23 yeah. million deaths, um, of which 50% are children. Yes. Whoa, okay, it doesn't get happier. No. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really bad. It's, um, it, and then it's contribution to antibiotic resistance. And, and that's where that issue comes in again of that completely novel single active constituent. Mm. It really saves a lot of lives. It's not all bad. You know, it's mm. these single actives created all these beautiful antibiotics. But we're getting to a point that bacteria can get resistant faster than we can produce a new antibiotic, and then particularly because it's just a single active molecule you have to become resistant to. Mm. So that's why doctors often give you combination drugs, because, you know, you got that, <clears throat> that combination that's a lot harder for those bacteria to get resistant to. Mm. Um, what I'm curious at is, um, can we combine the standard treatment with, with a, a plant extract to create better treatment outcomes? Yeah, it uh, kind of makes sense. Can I go back to the process of bringing this to market. Yeah, please do. I think I'm losing my voice. Yeah, absolutely. So. <laughs> the thing that is, uh, I've just been at a producer workshop over the weekend and we were talking about um, the development of story and, uh, and in particular Māori content and, and, and how, how you do that. And at the moment, the colonial uh, world says that we need to tickle these boxes in order to get things done. That's contracts, IP, legal agreements or whatever. Um, but with Māori content, there's, there's a process of consultation. There's a, res, a mutual respect. There's a, there's a way that you should go about it. And it's less box-ticking and more sort of like a koru shape, you know, where, where you start to engage with people. And I wonder if, you know, you, know, you talk about plant-based medicine being, you know, indigenous to the Netherlands and a big part of it. Um, they would have done a limited amount of research back then, obviously, because of technology and the times. Uh, but they would know that things work because they would see results instantly. And at the moment, you know, we've got this process of 15 years where I would imagine there'd be a lot of boxes for you to tick oh, yes. in terms of the way society says you need to do this before it can be commercially released. Mm. So if you didn't have those, you know, would that process be, you know, uh, sped up? Would there, would there be a lot? Would we see a lot more results, perhaps, than... Uh, um, this is a really good question because technically we can already put it on the market, yeah. but for for me it's and and for the for this to actually be able to get it in the hands of a doctor to prescribe it, we need to tick all these boxes. Right. Yeah. So and and that's where the people need it. It's yeah. it's um, it's it's really unfortunate that that there's this divide. That's what right? frustrates me about where we're at right it's, now. Uh, we're creating barriers and obstacles yeah. for ourselves where solutions 
are effectively already as existing. Yes, yeah, I think it's a really good, really good um, uh, example actually, because you know ginger, it's it's not a traditional Dutch or, or Teutonic uh, European uh, medicine, um, but cannabis is traditionally used there for centuries. Um, in the Netherlands, it's been available on prescription for twenty years. Um, so yeah, it's it's you know in, in drug resistant seizures, for instance, in, in children, mm. it's it's one of the things that's prescribed and. And here it's, it's, it's clinically researched for that, but it's still really hard to get this on prescription. And it's just really heartbreaking, really. It's, mm-hmm. it's can't yeah. imagine what, you know, what people have to go through to find a solution for your, for your child, you know. And, and it's more integrated in, in Europe. It's, it's, we've got about 150 botanical medicines on prescription, things like ginkgo to support with, you know, brain health and, mm. and memory. Um, and, and, um, and there's a lot more common in, you know, France, you know, over 300, 300 to 400 botanical medicines there. Kempo in Japan, over 800. I mean, New Zealand is, is exporting all this propolis to Japan where they make cancer drugs, mm-hmm. um, which are not available on the market over here. Yeah. It's, um, so these are prescribable plant extracts or plant-derived medicines? Yes, quality controlled. I think that's, that's one... Yeah one of the most important aspects of this. Sure. Um, mm. You see that with ginkgo, for instance, mm. to, to get a, um, clinically, clinical results, you need a certain amount of ginkgo lights, active constituents in this botanical medicine for, for the effect. Mm. Well, you don't have that quality control in dietary supplements, for instance. So I know, for instance, they, they, they make this ginkgo drug and then they sell the waste material to dietary supplements, which then doesn't have the ginkgo lights, but, you know, you're only looking for ginkgo on the label. So, right. so things like that, is, that quality control process is really, really important. And yeah. there, is, there is nothing on the dietary supplement side. You know, it's... Uh, um, and that's one of the reasons we're, we're taking the, the botanical medicines pathway because we'll be able to show the potential of, uh, of, of botanical medicines and how it might not just affect one biomarker, but a whole range of biomarkers that you see in you know, more mm. complex diseases like, like autoinflammation, which then relates to the, the bladder pain and the sepsis, which is autoinflammation process. It's, it's a process that... Well, the, the the body is, is presented with this infection, it panics and it, it starts attacking its own cells. It can't distinguish between you know, the, the bacteria and its own cells. So ideally you have something that protects your organs, right? That mm-hmm. modulates the immune response, mm-hmm. um, that protects your kidneys and your liver and your brain and your DNA. And all these things that are really important in these inflammation reactions, it's not just killing the bacteria. It's you know making sure that, that people get through the, amazing, out through yeah. the other hand with which relates to what you're saying. It, yeah. It's a holistic aspect of, of healing yeah. that, is, that is being lost. But you, you're in trials at the moment, aren't you? And we're getting Based. ready to go towards clinical trials, yes. Right, and that's the last bit of... Well, it's the not last the last bit. bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's enough. Enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's a, a grown-up thing as well. It's with the FDA, you know? Yes. So that's like, you know... That's the final big tick. In the box, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah. So the the US has a botanical pathway since 2016. Europe has always had that, I think. As New well. Zealand has one, right? Because it's really efficient. And no. <laughs> I know we've talked oh, about dragging the sign of it. Aren't it's, like, it's, yeah. heart, it's heartbreaking, right? Mm. It's, it's there you have yeah. these really amazing botanical medicines. We are generally not very expensive to make that can support a whole range of people and 
And specific to here, endemic, I mean, you know, in terms um, of the specific flora and fauna? Not specifically. I mean, okay. it's there are some amazing plants in New Zealand. And, and I think and that's part of what I what I hope to do as well is to yeah. to build this pathway for other companies to to follow mm. with with um, traditional um, plants that are found here that, that have been medicinally used here. So it's, uh, yeah, I think that's that's a really, just to give an example, for instance, if you look at Horopitu, mm-hmm. um, pepper tree, mm. and, and its potential to, to inhibit um, uh, fungal infections, drug-resistant fungal infections, huge, huge massive problem that, that can support so many people and we have it right here we can grow it at scale and it's not being done we're all focusing on cannabis which is probably one of the most difficult ones to get through the pathway mm-hmm. it's um and yeah there we got all these you know uh totara totarol antibiotic actions of of this this uh, this extract mm-hmm. so amazing amazing opportunities but so have you done a lot of research with with maori around how they've traditionally used medicines or, or um, plant-based medicines in New Zealand? Yeah, so it, it was part of my study, but being from Europe, I want to be respectful for, for that aspect as well. Yeah. It's, um, so I, I leave, you know, I, I, I know what to use in the bush, um, but yeah, I, I leave that there too, um, to be researched and commercialized by Maori as well. I think sure. that's, yeah. that's really important aspect and looking at... Um, if you go back to ethnobotany and and the damage that has been done by researchers going into the Amazon rainforest and learning from these tribes and, and then taking these right. plants with them, taking the single active constituent out, commercializing, making billions, this tribe never sees anything. If they would have received 1% of the profits, well, we the Amazon rainforest would be them. What was that called? Ethno, no. Ethnobotany, yes. Right. So the ethics behind both. Uh, ethnobotany is about the relationship between people and plants. Sorry, oh, okay. yeah. Yes. Makes yeah. Sense. yeah. So it's um, yeah. So I'm aware it's a really sensitive, mm. sensitive subject, yeah. and um, yeah. I want to be respectful for that as well. It's, uh, but you know, it's it's knowledge is, is getting lost. It's this is the last generation that that mm. will have the knowledge. I do you feel like there has been a bit of a sea change in the last few years about the world is slowly coming back round to to listening to indigenous and First, Na- First Nation cultures mm-hmm. around how they did things, mm. you know, because uh, you know, there was a Western tide of this is how we do it. And one example I, I remember being told about was in Australia, you know, that the centre of Australia is a big, massive desert. I lived there. But it, it never used to be like that. You know, it was mm. pastures and, and, and waterways because... The indigenous people of Australia knew how to farm that land. Yes. They knew how to work with the soil and those ingredients. And of course, um, the colonialism came along and mm. said, well, no, this is how we do it, so we're going to do that. And, and it just killed everything off. And, and so you think about that in terms of the impact that it's had uh, to a very large portion of Australia mm. and what mm. that could mean if, if, if we are able to reverse the tide. Absolutely. Yeah, same with New Zealand, I suppose, in terms of there was a recent uh, big thing from the government putting out their um, commission, sorry, emissions uh, plan uh, mm-hmm. about carbon and stuff. But the top two polluters are, well, the first one is Fonterra, 
which is obviously all our meat and, and milk and everything else, which is mainly an export as well. And in terms of what that's done to the land mm -hmm. of New Zealand, you know, because they've just, in, where there used to be just kauri trees everywhere and kind of this ecosystem of flora and fauna now, you know, flattened and made into pasture lands for all our beef and cattle. And, and well, Taking a little bit of that back, though, it's um, if you look mm -hmm. at some of the research that's been done by Dairy New Zealand and Wakfin is sponsored by Dairy New Zealand, I think, in um, uh, growing different types of, of plants instead of just grass if you grow plantain right. and chicory and mm -hmm. healthier cows you know mm. it's uh, um i think the cows cows love flax <laughs> right. um so yeah but it's uh, I, I i agree with you though if you if you look at how it's been commercialized and mm. simplified and how it can actually revert back into actually um creating healthier land yeah just collaborating together so. And in terms of keeping the commercialism here from a perspective of kind of lighter or weightless, which is very much your industry, a weightless industry, because mm. you kind of ship files around the world. You might, you know, definitely use energy to create that, but in terms of the product itself, it's mm. weightless, mm. you know, mm. and in terms of what you create, it's not weightless, but it doesn't have a scale of a cow, certainly. And in terms of the, then the health of the land, what you're creating, it's in concert with mm. rather than... A detriment too. It yes. Sounds like. Yeah, literally having a lighter footprint, really. Yeah. Mm. I think Across that's. Board. Yeah, we need to be more responsible about that now, mm. and uh, we haven't been. Mm. But uh, I, I'm hoping there's a sea change in that direction. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a nitrate of you know it's what they use to clean the mm. machines, and then it's been dumped over the empty fields, and you know once the nitrate makes it into your Aquifier, you mm. you won't be able to get that out. It's, no. mm. uh, it's a scary system. It's one it's of the few lands, one of the few countries that that mm. still has fresh water. You can go to Lower Hutt, and and yeah. you know you can mm. get aquifer water yeah. there. It's it, being from the Netherlands, I, my mind was completely blown. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you get water out of the ground. Is that safe? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like in the Netherlands they can't find bore water anymore that is not contaminated. My wow. my parents have. Gen X in their drink water that comes from the Teflon factory from DuPont wow. down the, downstream. It's, I would not drink water out of the tap in the Netherlands. It's all right, but here, good. Yes, yeah, it's, it's uh, <laughs> do Kytoki. They use, do they use fluoride over there? In they the don't, no. Right. Now we get topical treatment there. Okay, so. yeah. Interesting approach. Yeah. I'm mm. curious too about uh, in Wales, uh, mm. Do they um, do they have traditional medicine in Wales too? Not so much. There? I'll be very honest. Like that our whole culture is a very deep culture, and if you, it depends how far you go back and which bit you stop at. Mm. Sure. Just talk about the Welsh specifically, which are Celtic in terms of its tribal origin, mm -hmm. just like the Scottish, the Irish. But before that was the Picts and stuff like that. But basically, there's a Celtic um, tribe set. But mm. whales specifically do have some endemic species, like specific species, but not a huge amount in terms of botanicals. Mm -hmm. um, however, there's certain dishes in whales that I don't see anywhere else, and it's quite rich with certain things. The obvious one being lava bread. I don't know if you ever heard Please of lava tell me more bread. About that. Yeah, but it's it's not what it sounds like. It's neither <laughs> bread nor it's made of lava. It's spelled differently. So yeah, Aww. straight away you're like going, lava bread out of a volcano? That would be cool, but no. Yeah. It's volcano actually seaweed. 
seaweed. Uh, yeah, yeah, seaweed yes. kind of boiled down and it's so rich in its nutrients yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, seaweed is kind of making a comeback recently in terms yeah. of its its uh, properties in terms of health and what you can get from it and the zinc and iron in it all and, and the green good stuff. But yeah, in Wales is that dish. That being said, no, the, the Welsh aren't the most healthiest uh, of people, but there's only a small footprint of us is three million of us yeah. uh, so there's not a lot of us no, uh, in that regards reason. and um, yeah it's a kind of a hard environment I would imagine but that being mm. said what we've become known for in the last I, since I was a kid there was our lamb you know the Welsh lamb is supposed to be the best in the world compared to New Zealand as well there's always com- competing and it's because of the environment right there's a lot mm. of hills a lot of greenery because it rains a lot Sheep love that. <laughs> so they're healthy because they walk up and down hills a lot and they eat to their heart's content and it's very green and fresh there. But it seemed to be better than, say, Scottish lamb, which is a very yeah. similar environment. Yeah, like the Scottish have lamb. I don't know if I've ever had Scottish lamb. You're right. It's always Welsh lamb. Yeah. You go back and, mm. yeah. So lamb is our little thing that we become known for that we export to the world. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, in terms of then your traditional don't know because you then you got to go back to like the druids yeah. which is the i suppose the the heart of our old old culture but the druids were all killed off by the romans there's the genocide of the druids yes. and anglesey they all trapped them down there and then they killed them and slaughtered them so a lot of knowledge yes. have been lost yeah because it's an oral tradition yeah. Yeah. some of the yeah. um, druids escaped to ireland didn't they some but yeah, we yeah, all had Druids so, culture in Scotland Island and mm. down in Cornwall as well, the Cornish stuff, or the, and some Bretons and stuff like that. Mm. So there is some Druidity yeah. still left, and you go to things like the Eisteddfod every year, which is a national celebration mm. of Welsh culture mm. and language and song and, and thing. Um, and that's led by the Druids, so they wear big sheets, um, pointed hats, they look like, you know, the Pope. And they come in with sticks and things like that. It's a very kind of what you would think, you know, druids would look like. Yeah, they come in and they do some Welsh stuff, and they wasn't the queen initiated into druidry. There, that would be hilarious if no, she was. The, was she? She actually really? was. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna have to track that down. I don't I know. I can get and you a link. Fantastic if she was. <laughs> but yes, it's a yeah, yeah. It's a very. It's all to do with like being in touch with nature, that animism. Yeah. yeah. If you know what animism yeah. is, you know, celebrating the what they see and, and figuring out. All I think of when you say is druids is asterisks and obelisks. <laughs> right, you is know, it, you're familiar yes, with that? Yeah, yeah. absolutely, mm. yes. But I mean, that, that, they had a magic potion, so. Yeah, mm. Vikings and stuff. But yeah, right, yeah, the druids, uh, and there's a lot of druid Celtic symbols all over the place in Wales, you know, whether it be the Celtic kind of old crosses that you see everywhere with beautiful Celtic designs with certain things on it that people are still trying to decipher because it's druid yeah. language. Yeah, did you, did you ever notice the, the similarities between the Koru and the Trisco? I suppose, yeah. Mm. It's got a lot of interconnection, and mm. especially the weaving, that the, the, the relevance of weaving yes. here uh, from Maori culture, mm. and the Celtic crosses, or the Celtic knot, mm-hmm. as we're mm. called, which is always interconnected. And that's the idea of everything is interconnected, mm. you know, whether it be mm. story, whether it be land, whether it be health and everything else. That's also born of the, the use of textiles as well, wasn't it? Right, yeah. And, and, and weaving mm. as well. Of course, yeah. yeah, that would have happened around that time. So You've you mm. got three layers, right? You've got the druid philosopher and then you've got the ovat, which is the herbalist. 
right? Uh, and then okay. the bard, the storyteller. Yes. <laughs> and is the Eisteddfod is fascinating from a perspective of it's actually two words makes up the Eisteddfod, which is Eisteddf, which is to sit, and Ford, which is to be. And it was started in like the 12th century by some king back then, or some prince. And the idea was, hey, let's bring the bardic traditions together with some other druids and people and just, just sit and be for like a week. And then that created a little bit of a mini festival, what we would know as a festival back mm -hmm. then. It was like, just sit around, get drunk and talk about stuff, right? And sing and play and recite poetry and learn from each other. And people came from like France mm -hmm. and other places. It was like a sharing of culture, but it happened in Wales. Um, and now that's continued, and there's yeah. other Eistedd fods around the world, where it comes from the Celtic tradition, where they hold it in all over the place. But it still happens every year, Eistedd fod. Mm. But it's to sit and be. I like that concept. It's cool. Very yes. much like this. Yeah. Sit, be, and be with each other. See what comes out and learn. Yeah. Mm. And be open. And yeah, I love that. I've learned so much from different cultures and traditions. and. Mm. So I moved to Australia when I was 18 yeah. and decided to go and live in the desert, as you do. Of course. <laughs> and I um, was very lucky to learn some, some bushcraft from, um, um, from Aboriginals there and meet someone who was still able to navigate the waterholes and the stars. Cool. Completely blew my mind. It's, mm. it's, Amazing, amazing culture, and yeah, it really made me made me realize that that interconnectedness. I mean, you know, I learned my traditions. Um, I'm one of the last people who's traditionally trained into the European Dutch herbal medicine, so it's not a university subject, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it just made me realize how fragile that knowledge is. Yeah. Just being yeah. able to walk through the desert there and I would have died within a day and this guy yeah. was like picking out bush toffees and saying, want to try a bush toffee and mm. <laughs> this is how you find gems and this is how you determine when to find water. It's, yeah, it's such a, such a fragile knowledge that we build up over centuries and, and it almost seems like it's going to be lost within this generation. And, and a lot of it has already um, been lost and that's the, mm. that's the immensely frustrating thing, isn't it? Mm. That oh, we are literally reinventing the wheel all the time and we mm. don't have to. Yes. You know, if, it only, if only we'd listened to some of these oral traditions and actually respected that a little bit more, mm. uh, we'd be far better off as a result. But, um, but there's a role in there for people like if I can group us together, me and you, yeah. who are curators of story. Yes. Yeah. You know, who kind of go and likes to find people and bring them out in terms of the story. Yeah. Um, and there's a, definitely a role within technology that can play to That's gather, right. to categorize, you know, the taxonomy yeah. of things, the metadata that you can add to then stories if you curate it yeah. in the right way. Libraries yeah. have really embraced that and yeah. uh, really love the idea of, your knowledge become evergreen then because mm -hmm. of that mm. rather than sits with one person passionate. Now that's fragile and it's pure and sacred mm. because of its fragility, it becomes sacred. Mm. So therefore passing on meant mm. time, meant commitment, meant spending, you know, mm. purposefully a purposeful time with someone to learn from that. However, what we've seen as we know is that kind of that's fragile and it can break. If you oh yes, or misinterpreted. Yes. 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 Yes.
Yeah. I think that is that I fa- I find that really frightening is mm. to see how well, you just have to open Facebook to see ads of plant extracts for this and that and, and go, you know oh. that it's like no that doesn't do anything because it doesn't have the active yes yeah or some really dangerous things like uh, right. the ingredients you have in energy drinks for instance that that we used to we used to you know start my teaching in a plant you know medicine store in the Netherlands and able to to recognize people that that used to use certain plant extracts ephedra for instance and mm. um because it's so addictive and now they just put mm. them in energy drinks they go like oh can cause heart rhythm issues you know Whoa. it's okay you, you don't want to down two of those you know no. like or, guarana right yes That's, uh, quite a yeah ephedra guarana yeah um ginkgo if you don't use correctly or used in combination with caffeine mm-hmm. yeah it can be very very dangerous but yet it's legal. Over here it is. It's banned yeah. in the Netherlands. Yeah, is it? So the guarana. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah because it, it, it can cause seizures. And, and yeah. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, so that, that misinterpretation of those ingredients, mm. it's, um, it's really concerning because everyone on Facebook can give their opinion and, you know, it's, it's, yeah. not, <laughs> it's not edited. Or, um, I still know a couple of people that still that look after the traditional libraries yeah. and the library comes with the librarian librarians mm-hmm. so yeah. they 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 can you know help you interpret those ancient texts and yeah. but um but they've recently been looking at you for a new space because they they were set at the university and there was little interest in in that traditional knowledge and and now they had to put everything in 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 storage mm-hmm. which wow. this breaks my heart it's all this this mm-hmm. knowledge these books that i you know would love to read and where yeah. you know still holds this knowledge and they're not digitalizing the text in any way because mm-hmm. um that could I be i don't think so but it's a good idea though. nowadays right you point it mm-hmm. at a page of text and, and press mm-hmm. the button and it, you know you can copy the whole text and send mm-hmm. it yourself and Google did that whole play, didn't they, about digitalizing text online and yeah. stuff that, that yeah. makes them searchable. That's yeah. the difference. That's right. Taking a photo, but also reading yeah. what's in mm. the photo yeah. and then making it searchable. Yeah. Now, that's a good question. So how yeah. can we make that mm. thing happen? Mm. You know, that's, that's easier really said than done because of resources. Because yeah. that takes time, mm. that takes energy. Digitalization does take humans. Mm. Yeah. Still got to put a book in and stack them up. And oh, even the yeah. first step of, of writing it down, I know that Mark Plotkin, who's an ethnobotanist um, who worked in Suriname a lot um, in, in the Amazon rainforest, and he now supported um, the indigenous tribes with writing things down in their native language mm. so people can't just come in and say thank you very much for all this knowledge right. and goodbye sure. you know it's um, so it's okay. and i think that that's something that needs to be taken into account as well with the interpretation it's yeah. Uh, yeah. a shamanic interpretation is a very very different interpretation than how science <laughs> looks at things yes. yeah. um and being able to connect that and and honor that i think mm. it's it's i think so it's, it's a really would be really exciting to see how that you know how that would fit yes. within within a format like that. It's, um, it feels like something like the UN should even be involved with. You know, they are to a certain extent. Right? Um, okay. Yeah, and I was part of a um, just before COVID hit as well. A part a part of a group of shamans online that shared their knowledge. So it was a lot of shamans from South America um, yeah. and um, and North America and, and people from Europe and the UK and um, we had different sessions to to exchange your knowledge and culture and look at the similarities mm-hmm. and um, had the privilege of, of introducing um, 
uh, a good friend of mine who is who is very familiar with um, uh, uh, Rongoa Maori. I hope I'm saying that correctly with my Dutch accent. Um, and and she she made an introduction as well, and it was really beautiful to see the similarities between culture and interpretation and um, that holistic aspect of not just seeing the plant for its single active constituent but for the spirit of the plant mm-hmm. as well for instance mm-hmm. and which is completely neglected in science it's, yes. it's uh, um, so yeah it was it was a really good way forward and unfortunately with with COVID that that has not continued but yeah. um but yeah I, I know some of the delegation has have gone to the UN. I think there's been a first meeting in the preservation of ancient knowledge. But um, Makes sense. we need younger people to pick that up. I think it's mm. we need people in universities to ask that question. You know, it's uh, not just what's traditionally used. How do we identify the main active constituent? But how is this holistically used? How does this affect the mm. whole body? And, mm. and maybe the relevance as well, because I know some are taken for other reasons other than just the medical medical uses also mm. I know in Japan and other Asian cultures it's like no you take this to be well you don't take it because you're not well right you know it's part of mm. sustaining yeah. yeah like doctors get paid if you're not sick yes you don't yes. get paid if you are sick because yeah. like you know I'm sick you're supposed to keep me well yeah. versus mm. the other way around here well, that's how we treat yes. health here isn't it you yeah know, the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff right yep. yeah yeah yeah, it's always like, oh yes, no, we react. We're very reactive mm. to, to that, rather than being proactive. Mm. And when it comes to health, you know, I for one know that I should be much more proactive around yeah. taking things or making sure that, you know, I've been learning a lot more about the the, the mind gut uh, relationship uh, a lot lately, and how those two things are really interconnected. And you know, um, I'm pretty sure I'm right with this, but you know, when you're when you're first um, conceived, you know, that, that, and that embryo splits into two, uh, it, it's um, mind and gut. Those are the first two cells Whoa. that are formed and they're interconnected. Uh, and then that's actually a big part of who we are, which is why we are what we eat. You know, yeah. there's a big relationship mm. between those two and that we should be paying more attention to that process. Mm. Yeah. Well, that just blew my mind. <laughs> oh, you're completely right. It's connected yeah. to the vagus nerve. Yeah, yeah, it's right. uh, and and that is something that always been the foundation of traditional medicines, and now we're catching up with science. Like, oh, they're actually right, <laughs> you mm, know. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think it, it's it's hugely important, but it's a predispositioning as well. I mean, mm. it's uh, uh, my ancestors didn't have enough to eat through all the wars, so mm. therefore I'm more sensitive to eating sugar, for instance. Yeah, I got right. a really yeah. strong response to that. Yeah, it's so um, it's a genetic kind of mm. uh, throwback. Absolutely, yeah. Much more sensitive to to diabetes, for instance. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting how that affects you know what who we are today through mm. ancestry. And, Have you seen yeah. um, that sugar film? No, I haven't. It's really worthwhile worthwhile watching. It's an Australian documentary uh, where this guy goes on a journey to discover how much sugar is in our foods. Oh wow! Um, and and what it actually does to us and what it means. And there's this great infographic that he has. Of um, basically has a, a sort of an overhead shot of a supermarket, and then he takes away all the aisles that have sugar, and, um, <laughs> and uh, you know all you're left with really is is, um, is fruit and vegetables yeah. section really mm. uh, when you look into it, and you know wow. how everything much, else gone, 
Yeah, yeah, it's God. a fascinating documentary. Yeah, and then you look yeah, at yeah. the price of them these days, and you think, no wonder people get sick. You yeah. know, it's like yeah. five dollars for a celery. Yeah. So yeah. four fifty yesterday for a cucumber. No <laughs> it's like, whoa, what? And fifteen dollars for a block of cheese. Can I just say that? Oh, that is crazy. That is, eh? Hey? Yeah, <laughs> it really doesn't make is. any sense to me. No, that's no, bonkers. It is. It is bonkers. I love that. It, it is. is. Mm. Yeah. Talk, talking about documentaries, because you mentioned it, what are you working mm. on at the moment? And have you, what projects do you have on the slate or that yeah. you can talk about? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I've really taken a bit more of a view to starting to develop my own work mm. more and more. I love working on other people's work, but um, uh, I've got um, three unscripted series in development at the moment. One okay. we're pitching, uh, which... Is sort of a project that's dear to myself and another friend um, who came up with the concept. There's an organisation called SPORE, uh, South Pacific Animal Welfare, and uh, it's a voluntary organisation of vets who travel to the Pacific and they go there to take care of the animals uh, and mm. to really not just take care of the animals but really educate uh, and provide assistance. So a big part of this is, is set in Tonga. Um, Mark, my colleague, went to Tonga in 2019 and uh, went with the, with the vets uh, where they provided assistance. And there's, there's actually no vets at all in Tonga. Oh, wow. So, um, so these people rely on the efforts of Spore to be able to go over and, and take care of their animals. Uh, and, of course, there's a, uh, a lack of education around how they treat animals there too. You know, it's, okay. uh, and because of you know, various customs and, and just the way um, they've, grown, they've been brought up, you know, there's, there's another way of looking at it. So um, a big part of what we want to do is, is one, first and foremost, to, to provide uh, funding and financing to SPOR to continue to doing their work. Mm. And of course, the last time they went back to Tonga was 2019. And since then, they've had COVID and then that massive tsunami. Yeah, yeah um, I was going to say. And, and so, you know, Jeff, who's the lead vet, he's, he's saying, you know, you just don't know what they're going back to. You know, mm. that, that it's, it's going to be, you know, obviously the, the people have really suffered, but the animals have not been looked after either. Mm. Oh, and it's also yeah. very difficult to get um, drugs into Tonga. There's a lot of drugs that are not uh, not able to go through the borders. Like they can't, oh, have, like okay. flea treatments, they, they can't even get those through because they're very strict on the way they bring those sorts of drugs in. So, so there's wow. so a lot that we want to do with this TV series yeah. to be able to educate and and provide support for their organization so mm. that's been a big passion project mm. yeah which is cool I can imagine really this sounds really interesting hopefully making that on, on the tv screen what's the process for those who are interested in wow documentary i'd like to do something like that but how would you deconstruct it when you're talking to people saying i want to be a documentary filmmaker one day i just think uh being curious number one really that you know whether it's you or a writer or another creative you're involved with. I mean, my role is primarily as a producer, mm. but I see myself as a creative producer because I, I want to get involved in those stories. But I think that's number one. Be curious and be curious about the world around you. Uh, and that's where the stories come from. Um, and, and you have to be passionate about telling the story. Mm. You can't just jump on board somebody else's idea unless you're really into it. Mm -hmm. So trust your gut mm. is, is another part too. But then to develop it, you know, you really just need... Uh, and it's so easy to pick up a camera these days or a phone and just make something. Uh, and it's, it's really easy to do now. So develop that craft, develop that storytelling skill. 
uh, just by interviewing people. Do exactly what you're doing now. Mm. Build the spine of your story by talking to people. You can add colour and images later, mm. but uh, that's a really big part of it. And then, you know, from that, you've already got a documentary that you can put on TikTok or Instagram or, or whatever. There's loads of platforms out there that you can do it. Mm. And, you know, traditional media, you don't need to go down that route anymore. Yeah. There's so many opportunities, yeah. So for anyone who's looking to, to get into documentary or storytelling, mm. it's easy to do. It is. Um, the hard part, I suppose, is, is being paid to do it. And that's that's the that's the rub, yeah, isn't it? But you need to come from a place of passion first. Mm. Uh, so maybe don't give up your day job. Uh, <laughs> have the <laughs> have the financial models changed over the number of years you've been doing this stuff? Um, well, in in the film industry, they've changed a lot. Yeah. Like that was a very traditional structure of of how to put a film together. We're very lucky in this country. We have the New Zealand Film Commission mm. that will will finance ninety percent of your feature film. And then the last 10% is, is private money that gets brought in. Uh, and then you can put your film together. And then traditionally, you take it to the cinema. You know, you get a box office return. Although, having said that, uh, only 1% of films worldwide will recoup on their budget. That's how oh, wow. only difficult. Oh, only 1%. Whew. That's how difficult it is. And most of that 1% are the... Um, tentpole films, the Marvel films and the big budget films mm. because they, you know, they're a machine into themselves. But indies, independent films, it's very difficult for them to, to make that turn around. Such a proportional disrep- disrepresentation. Yeah. Wrong words, but you know what I'm no, saying. You're right, yeah. So out of whack that it 1%, is. but that 1% makes up for the 99. Yeah. That's right. Wow. And the way the system has traditionally been set up too is that you know, you have what's called a waterfall in terms of the um, the recoupment process for film and anyway. Uh, and it's the people who put in the greatest amount of effort into making something who uh, recoup the least amount or are at the bottom of the run in terms of that. So the producers and the makers generally, you know, in order to get their film out there to the world, they then they find a distributor. Uh, they work with investors who put money into the film. Mm. Uh, the distributor then gives that to the exhibitor or the streamer or whoever that is. Uh, and everyone takes off the top first. So the last in get the first amount of money. So the exhibitors take the money, the distributors take their cut, the investors want their money back. Uh, and quite often, more often than not, there's nothing left in the end for the makers of the film. Oh. So the process of it has mm. been very topsy-turvy. Um, but I think that's changing a little bit now, particularly with streamers and, yeah, and the fact that you can, um, there's this vertically integrated part now where mm. streamers are investing in films at grassroots, you know, they're doing almost a buyout. So you, you as a maker get paid to make that and that's mm. great. But then they buy it off you and they put it on their platform and they're not only a distributor, but they're an exhibitor. They, they're going market. direct to market. Yeah. yeah. So people like Netflix, Amazon, and other people who traditionally would just be a distributor yes. is now being a funder. That's right, yeah. And a producer is probably as well. That's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so the, 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 the world is changing. Although, you know, Netflix lately have uh, had a, taken a bit of a hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people are saying they might have reached the peak of, um, of what they think is possible. Some of their subscribers are dropping off. Yeah. But that was always going to happen. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of interest in that world first yeah. as a new way of doing things. Mm. Now, lots of other companies have got on board to become streamers. Everything, everyone's got a plus symbol beside yeah. them now. Apple yeah. Plus, Prime mm. Plus, Disney or whatever plus. it is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that, that 
that world is changing. Uh, but then you've also got other digital media like YouTube. You know, YouTube is like one of the biggest content providers mm. in the world. Mm. And the generation below us, that's where they go for, they don't watch traditional TV. Yeah. Um, they would barely even go to the movies now or they would seek out to go and see something in a theatrical environment. Uh, they watch YouTube mm. and that's how they uh, consume their content. Mm. And increasingly TikTok and all these mm. other platforms that I don't really want to get involved with. <laughs> it's well beyond my, my understanding. But yeah, the, the, it's changing constantly, that yeah. landscape. But the, the main thing remains is that good content will find a home. Yeah, that's what I truly believe. Mm. You know, if, if the content's good, if the story is worthwhile telling, uh, then it will find its its platform somehow. Yeah, and so you need to keep that in mind. Otherwise, it's really easy just to get lost in the chaos of going. You know, why am I trying to contribute to this massive environment where nothing's mm. going to be seen? Mm. But it is. It's to tell stories like yours and to tell stories mm. about things that have meaning. Yeah. Yeah. From my perspective, and to entertain, because sometimes. You know, a film doesn't need to change the world. It just needs to make us laugh. Yeah. And in particular, sorry to bang on about it, but yeah, you know, the, last two years, <laughs> the last two years of COVID, we've needed entertainment. Yeah. We've needed a release yeah. from something. And that's where, you know, we've consumed so much content because we need a bit of escapism. Mm. Mm. Oh, uh, absolutely. And so that's where it's become, you know, we, we've actually gone back to the fact that, you know, we need something to, to take us away from, from reality Balance. sometimes mm. or sure. give us some some excuse to dream yeah mm. some some really good documentaries as well though i mean that's i've been actually really missing that on that mm. on netflix i've been a, always been a big fan of of uh, the dutch uh, production of zembla i'm not sure if you're familiar with that it's Tell a, me more about that. investigative journalism ah, okay. uh, but the difficult topics yeah. and and i was really curious how things really work you know we're, we're seeing this part mm. seeing the top layer the, the tip of the iceberg and What's underneath that? What's driving certain decisions or yeah. models or constellations? And yeah, it's um, yeah, it's uh, I find it really fascinating to actually, you know, after a while with COVID, you get through all the movies and like some real content. Yeah. So and and um, yeah, it's uh, I'm, I'm really admiring what you're doing with with how you're you know producing stories that you know have got a got a real message. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, are, you a, are you a book learner? Are you very good at, you must be good at research if, because a lot of that is based in print. And yeah, because I, I think for me, that's where my education went awry is that that's not what I'm good at. And if we had the sort of documentaries now, or back mm. then that we do now, I, I think my trajectory would have been much different or I, I would have taken on board that knowledge in a better way. Mm. Yeah. And that's what I like about that visual medium is that uh, mm. it's I, I'm suddenly curious about all sorts of subjects. When I was, whereas when I was at school, you know, science was vaguely interesting because mm. I just couldn't. It was so wordy for me, yeah. so dense. Yeah, same for me. Same for you? Yeah, totally. Education for me written down. You know, I did yeah. very mediocre in school academically. Mm even though I don't think I, I'm not saying I'm intelligent, but I'm more curious than that. It's just different and ways of learning, right? I yeah. Mean, and I that wanna... The school doesn't really acknowledge that. I mean, there, yeah. most people are visual learners. I used to make drawings of absolutely everything. Oh, yeah. So I, needed, I knew I needed to deal with the book, mm. <laughs> but my notes were, 
drawings of different shapes of bacteria, of different plants, yeah. of yeah. So and then Those, listening to the stories. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. From you understood your learning style. And mm. I think there's not a la- there's a lack of literacy around not just understanding how to deliver different to different learning styles, but also then teaching people how to learn themselves mm. was your best. You know, and starting mm. very young. Mm. You know, we know this because you can give a kid a ball and they're amazing at it. They've got a propensity to it. They've just got a talent versus a guitar to some other kid and they've just got a um, an, an, a way of communicating with their fingers that mm. someone else can't. Same for so, me and my bros. We're all so different, right? My brother made, used to make numbers dance, you know? He just loves numbers. Yeah. For me, it's like, I don't understand this. And he'd be yeah. shouting, why can't you get this? I'm it's there. And I'm like, yeah. I'm sorry, but the literacy levels. And it was just like, Give me a different way to learn this. Give me a yeah. way to juggle this or something, you know, mm. or, or play with it. And when it comes to technology, I always loved emerging tech because technology, and especially online, because you could uh, play with it. Mm-hmm. You could push the buttons. You could try to break it constantly. So it was always that classic case of your parents asking you to program the VCR. Mm. And in your head as a kid, you didn't know how to do it, but you loved pressing buttons. Mm. So yeah. you very quickly learn. Yeah. And it's just like, there's an adult idea there of, you know, socialized into failure. You don't want to break something. Mm. Um, you're right saying, I don't know, but you never learn how to do it mm. because you don't want to break anything. Um, oh, it's just a literacy so much through that, channel. through failure, right? Yeah. 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 yeah and, and keeping a healthy uh, respect and, in, I suppose, appetite for failure into ad- mm. adulthood is really hard. Yeah. I am still struggling with certain things, but, yeah. you know. Super just, scary. Gosh, yeah, yeah, so hard. Uh, yeah. I think that's the most healthiest space to be in. Mm. Like, yeah, I agree. I don't know. I'll give it a go. Yeah, I don't know. I'll give it a go. Yes, I think that's always the best attitude. Yeah, I, re- I really do. You know, mm. get asked to do projects all the time, and my propensity is always to say yes right. and work out how to do it later. <laughs> um, yes, right. So glad you do that because amazing work that's coming from that. It's, mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, but uh, I think I think more people should do that because sometimes mm. we're too afraid to, mm. to, to to branch out to to push our own boundaries. Do you think that's just a trait in creativity, though? No, I don't. No? No. Okay. I think that's a trait uh, across all disciplines. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, well, I don't know. Maybe I should, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I should walk that <laughs> I mean, do you, is it a trait in your field? I think it would be great. I mean, I really struggled through stats. I remember being right. like two o'clock at night, absolutely in tears because I, yeah. I could not plot the dots. Right. <laughs> yeah. And going through the book and with the words, and then actually looking up the YouTube video and go, click. Uh, yeah. Oh, thank God. And exactly. Yes, yeah. it really is. And, and not giving up. It's like, I'm, if I have to turn it into different types of cats, I don't care. I'm going to do the statistical analysis, yeah. you know. Yeah. I think it's a like, little bit of stubbornness there, I think, in your, in your grit yeah. and trying to figure yeah. it out maybe. It's, That's um, a good yeah. creative trait, it's, I think, uh, stubbornness. Because I don't it's know. Like I think trying. grit is, is it's, that's what, when you feel, that's the part that gets, gets you back up, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the part that, you know, if, uh, my goodness, I can't do this anymore. Oh, I'm gonna give it one more try, <laughs> you know. It's just a little different. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So was, yeah. I, didn't Einstein say that he's not that clever? He just uh, devotes more time than the other person to the problem. Right. right? He did. He did. He say just that. devoted yes. himself deeply, yeah. and he didn't think mm. himself as clever. He just devoted himself, immersed yeah. himself, yeah. dedicated. Then, then grit is not really encouraged in school, though. 
No, no. Pace is a learning as well. (laughs) Yeah. Like everybody's got to learn at the same pace, right? Whereas like you, you had to take a long time to do just one thread where I'm sure they were, well, I've already taught you how to do that. It's like, no, you you told me how to do it. You told me how to do it. (laughs) The the teaching is in the learning. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Not in the teach or taught. Combination yeah. of good teachers then yeah. as well, because I could never have learned stats if I didn't right. have a wonderful professor yeah. that had a lot of patience with me. <laughs> yeah, that's lovely that yeah. they existed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think finding that teacher as well. I think that that made a big difference for me. Mm. Finding someone that that could explain something to me that had, yeah. and then see how that would fit into what I was mm. working on. Mm. I was rubbish at stats. I I remember my first year of university, uh, I studied, to start with anyway, a business management degree. And every Friday from 7am to 9am, we had statistics. Mm. So they got me off on the wrong foot to start with. It's like, who wants to get up at 7? And who wants to do two hours of stats on a Friday? So I just never went. And, um, I can imagine. And, and, and most of the class I remember that year failed, wow. came back with bad grades. And then I think they looked at the curriculum because this was a business management course. It's mm. not a, it's not a, a statistics or a maths based or mm. science based course. So they looked at that, and then they took all the maths out of the stats. And then when the second year, when I had to ultimately repeat the course. Mm. It was much easier mm. uh, because it was less mathematics and more how we view statistics within a management context. Yes. Mm. And so once they did that, I was like, oh, I'm on board. Yes. That's fine. Yeah. But, and they also changed the time. Mm. So, and they yes. probably taught through stories more and rather than hard data yeah. maybe. And it's less, less um, abstract. I passed. So yeah. like <laughs> humanizing something right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll know this, like humanizing a story gives it a lot more gravity and impact. Yeah, for And sure. if you just have a statement with stats, mm. sometimes the stats are resting, you know, like 80 million, whatever, or something like that. Mm. But once you put, well, just think about how many families that are affecting. Mm. And think about just on your street. Yes. If you live in a street with 40 people, one of them is going to have whatever. And you're mm. like, oh, oh, now I'm talking about my neighbours. Mm. You yes. make it much more closer mm. to you as a story. Mm. So mm. there's certain things you can play around with in storytelling. I remember you saying something along those lines with TEDx once when, and it always stuck with me because I try and do that too, is that we learn better from case studies or from, mm. from actual stories rather than just telling you about something. Yeah. Uh, mm. If we do humanise it and put those elements in, it yeah. makes a big difference. The lived experience. Recall. Yeah. If you can yeah. add in your lived mm. experience to it. That's right. <coughs> amplifies it. Mm. Yeah. It makes it relevant not only the listener, but of yeah. why I'm listening to you tell me the, yeah. and why it's important to you, but also the person saying will emotively come out better mm. because mm. they care about it. Yeah. It actually reminds me of a, of a TEDx I watched this morning about, um, I think it's on Nature, the Best Chemist, okay. um, by Dr. Pendy, okay. Windsor University in Canada. So um, it comes back to that single active constituent. They looked mm. into um, dandelion root uh-huh. um, in the treatment of leukemia. Um, really serious, right? It's, yeah. uh, and he identified that it worked. And the animal studies, complete remission. But then they found that just stuffing it in the juicer with a bit of water and draining that worked better than getting the single active constituent out. 
so they pull the plug on the project. It's uh, so things like that. It's it's absolutely mind blowing, right? It's uh, yeah. something that most people spray with Roundup. Yeah. It's the potential wow. there, and yeah, it's um, and he tells about it in the in his TED talk about his journey mm. and and how they found you know showing the pictures and, yeah. and how they found out that it worked. Mm. Yeah, wow. it's uh, what an arc of story because that sounds so hopeful yeah. and hopeful, and then ah. Oh. Yes. Yeah, I just pulled out from yeah. under you. Mm. Yeah, my father had leukemia, and well, you know that was is such a um, awful disease. Mm. And again, like it's one of those things that got me thinking more about cancer in particular and how it's 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 a human-made disease, isn't it? You know, we've almost done it to ourselves mm. through the way that we work. And to sort of hear stories like that, mm. it's like if we only listened to nature a little bit more mm. there's there's ways of being able to solve our issues mm. yeah yes yeah, yeah. so looking into that for for my mother-in-law with um yeah. passed from leukemia and yeah. specific type and um because of radiation exposure very likely early in life but mm. um so yeah i've been looking at, at you know the different treatment and try to talk with our doctors that's what you you know consider combination treatments with this and then there's no clinical research on this, but you know you can't. You, there was a product that's already out there, so you mm. can't patent the product. And if you can't patent the product, you can't create the ownership of the product. Yeah. Therefore, you cannot guarantee return of investment. So, how are you be able to get the money to do that clinical trial? Yeah, can't even and start. Yeah, that's yeah. the mad thing in Asinor. You can't even start. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, what if it works? We'll never know. So it's and the botanical space is very different in terms of patent than, than the other side, right? The more chemical, yes. medicinal side. Because you can't patent a plant? You can't patent a plant, no. Which, fair you, you can patent a completely novel chemical molecule that you find. Yeah. Mm. And so, yeah, there's a lot more ownership there. So it's made me wonder if there, if there would be space for, like, a code of honor, you know, we do this type of research and, mm-hmm. and you do it for, for the greater good. There's mm-hmm. Or could it even be, because I, I suppose, like, people, large pharma companies have to have some kind of licensing to do the, the work that they do. Are they licensed? Do you know in other words? Yes, yeah, so the patent could be licensed. No, but the government would license a plant to do certain types of research. Do they have to like apply for certain licenses? Um, yes, but the first question on pretty much any grant application is, yeah. what is your patent stance? Right. But I was going to say... Not as, if is it going to you know, change yeah. the world? It's not it. It's like, what's your patent stance? Maybe my roadblocks po- we're putting in our exactly. own way. I'm sorry to sit on my soapbox, but no. it's frustrating, isn't it? So oh, what can really we do, is. Cynthia, to champion people like you mm. and, and to all those people watching this to be able to to really support that movement? We know it's good for us. Mm. We know that there's there's ridiculous systems and roadblocks in the way. So what can we do as as individuals to be able to go, you know, how can we support your company and how can we how can we start thinking a little bit better about how mm. to look after ourselves? I think it doesn't specifically have to be the support of the company. Well, that would be really appreciated. I mean, I've got some really awesome, brave investors. Mm. Um, I think just in general, 
looking at the potential of a botanical medicine pathway for New Zealand alone mm -hmm. and the potential that, that the benefit that can bring to people's health but also to to New Zealand's unique biodiversity and actually sharing being able to share that mm. you know make the product and, and, and then share that with the rest of the world finding solutions for diseases that we currently can't can't cure mm. um, so that's, that's what we try to do with the company as well to to trailblaze that path to make that possible um, I think that the, the bigger concept it's it's no, I think um, cannabis companies doing it really well with you know IPOs and going public, and then individuals can decide to invest in a company like that, and um, to realize there's so much more than just cannabis. I mean, mm. you, know, you see people now investing in psilocybin. I think mm. Peter Thiel just invested massively into that. When I wrote a paper on the use of hallucinogenics in the treatment of addiction 10 years ago. And I thought it was absolutely nuts. Mm. <laughs> I was like, this is, you'd never be able to test that. This is, what is it? Look, this is how, you know, the Buitiu West Africa uses this plant extract. And yeah. we found that it, it cures addiction and inhibit, inhibits all the cravings for three months. This is really cool. It's like, yes, but it's hallucinogenic cross. You know, it is, should, you, yeah. you can never research that. So it's really amazing that... We got this far in the last 10 years to now actually mm. getting investment towards that and, sure. and research towards that and seeing some really exciting results. Yeah. Um, so I think you keep asking those questions, but mm. yeah, just thinking about even about documentaries, there, there's an, even a documentary about it, I think. Mm. Um, I think there's, there's one on Iboga and that, that hallucinogenic plant extract right. on YouTube, but I think a lot of people don't realize all the steps that are involved. I don't think a lot of doctors might realize mm. that that the medicines they have in their medicine toolbox, what the steps are to actually get them there. They know mm. they you know, clinically verified, but are they aware that, you know, ideally it's a primary patent, you know, it's, right. uh, to to even get the process started. And, yeah, I think it's... Uh, there are a lot of steps to uncover there, I think. It's, uh... But you did some research uh, about, um, in previous conversation, I remember you t quoting research that you did, mm. that Evite, about what if these drugs were available both for the doctor and the consumer? Yes. The yeah, I was really curious to, to find, find out if, if botanical medicines were available. Yeah. Um, would people be open to that? Mm -hmm. um, because... And consumer research is really rare yeah. <laughs> in this space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the end of the day, it's you and me taking these products, yeah. right? Um, so we found that 78% of participants would prefer a botanical medicine over a pharmaceutical drug. So, and then 70% of practitioners felt confident in prescribing and got to the point that, that some of the doctors I interviewed um, said, look, if you can show me one clinical trial, I'll prescribe it. <laughs> That's how high the need is. Wow. So, so it comes back yeah. to your market question. There it is does. one. Mm. There is a market. It's the process that's getting in the way. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So we need to address the process mm. a little bit better. Yes. Yeah, yeah likely, yeah. yes. Yeah. But that's it's a tall order. It's a small uh, thing. Although yeah. we started. This is a start. I'm aware of both your times. Um, and just to bring it to a close, really, a, a question about... I like to ask the question about hope, what you're feeling positive about in this year, because we're nearly halfway through. What is the rest of 2022 going to serve you in terms of that positivity? What are you hopeful for? 
Mm. You? Um, yes, yeah, the, the first clinical trial. Mm. Yes. Mm. Can't wait. This is so exciting. I mean, this is, yeah, this is what I've been looking forward to in the last 15 years. So, yeah. Wow. It's huge. Um, so excited for you. And how quickly after that trial will you know sort of... Uh, it's just your first indication of, right. of the feasibility of the biomarkers in people. Yeah. I mean, you know, these people can test these things in animal studies, but, you know, we don't have a lot of common with rats. Right. <laughs> so we get some indication there. But, um, but yeah, this actually showed that, that we'll be able to hit multiple biomarkers in, in people. Um, show an indication of a reduction hopefully but this is just a feasibility this is just can we measure this and then um, a larger trial in the treatment of, of the disease mm. so like was that like six months or two months um or? so the initial clinical hopefully within six months and then the second would be after the second funding round right so by the end of the year you will have the results in theory yes and there'll be double thumbs up i'm sure and then yes, hopefully, going. yes. Wow, I mean, there's always a level of uncertainty, but yeah, of we got a good indication yeah. that yeah. that um, it it will do what it what what we hope it does. So, yeah. This is the culmination in many senses of all the work that you've done. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's really to look at that holistic perspective and not just focusing on you know one one molecule, one pathway, one receptor side, but yeah. looking at that holistic aspect of, of the whole human and and how it can create better treatment outcomes. I think yeah. that's, that's what it all comes down to. Um, distilled yeah. it to sepsis, I think it's one in six people, permanent disabilities. Um, we're looking at bladder pain as our first step in clinical yeah. research. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, most, most people with um, interstitial cystitis die from suicide because there is no medicine. Sorry. And this is, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, wow, that's scary. So, or you're stuck with, with a disease of, Constant, constant pain. Yeah. So it's mm. uh, wow, amazing that you're focusing on that, and amazing the potential effects, positive yeah. effects you're going to have mm. if yeah. this all comes. We all want quality of life, right? Yeah, yeah. indeed. Especially mm. if it's so attainable mm. as what you're trying to achieve. You really are changing the world. Cynthia. There we go. Yeah. I will see in the end of this year. <laughs> Yeah, watch this space. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. What about you, Mark, in terms of hopefulness and um, positivity? Yeah, well, I mean, I just, just where the world is at right now, I suppose. Mm. We've come through a lot of challenges over the last few years. I do see light at the end of the tunnel. And, I, you know, as I've said, I see my role in it is about telling stories so that people are more informed about things, but also... Um, have the opportunity to, to, to just laugh and enjoy themselves. Mm. I'm making a short film in July with a friend and, and you know, it's not going to change the world, but it, it, it's, it's funny. And I'm looking forward to that. Mm. That's a cool process. Um, I'm just I'm hopeful for um, the opportunity to make great work with good people. Mm. I mean, it just sounds so cliched when I say it, when it falls out of my mouth, but I mean, that's, that's yeah. all I want. I want to, mm. I, I said to myself last year, and of course, again, COVID's given us lots of pause for thought, hasn't it? But come back to, you know, especially in the screen industry, it's all about results. You know, it's very result focused, but uh, I really want to make sure that I enjoy the journey. Mm. 
mm. um, with all the people I work with because that's the memories that you have at the end of the day is, yes. is that process. Yeah. That's what I'm hopeful for. I love that. Mm. What are the types of people you want to play with when you say the certain types of people, specific types? No. Well, good people. I kind of have a, I have a no dicks rule, really. <laughs> it, it, it is, it's true, you know. Yeah. You, you, and and you do work with them over the years. They yeah, insert themselves into your situations, and it's just not a fun time. And you're not, you know, you're not on the same page. Yeah. So uh, I really just want to work with people who have that same, this shared vision. Uh, but it's just fun to be with. Yeah. And then that's when you make your be- you make your best work. Mm. Is when. Uh, the process is so easy as a result. Yeah. So that any speed bumps that come along, and they do all the time, you know, you can deal with them because yes. you've got the right people on board and you've got the right attitude. Mm. Uh, and um, again, we were talking about this over the weekend at the producers' workshop. In the startup scene, you know, they talk about fail fast all the time. Yeah. Uh, but in the screen industry, you know, if you fail, that's, it's, you know, if you do a project and it falls over, you know, there's this kind of perception that, mm. that oh, they're not going to get back up again or it's, you know, they're never going to learn anything. But you have to turn that on its head and go, mm. actually, failure is a big part of what we do yeah. and that's where your best learnings come from. And mm. so concentrating on that and then using that mm. uh, to, to, to bounce into your next project is the best way to look at it. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. Oh, I love what you're saying there about the whole startup culture of, you know, feel fast. And mm. it's, um, yeah, I think we really have to have a look at how we deal with things like that. Because yeah. there's always, like you say, there's always going to be speed bumps and, and, yeah. and you're going to need a team around you to, to support you, you know, through, through those processes. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that, that I always find hard to hear in the startup scene. Mm. It's... Uh, because you know we're talking about people here. Right? That's right. Yeah. It's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And, so and no real, one's perfect. <laughs> yeah, and and also real human emotion mm. too. You know, so you have to be wary of that. Yeah. Uh, and accept that that not everyone's going to bounce back in the same mm. way they should. Mm. But by creating creating an atmosphere or a culture where it's okay to fail, and we can sit down and talk about those learnings, mm. and. Uh, you know, I used to work in event management all the time and I would talk about, um, you know, no one's died and the sun will come up tomorrow. You know, yes. being the two main <laughs> things. It's like, so yeah. if, if that's what's, if, you know, if it's not those things, then you're okay. Yes. Yeah, you doing know, well. Everything else you can bounce back from. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and the people will come over to you much sooner as well when something is going wrong. So, ooh, you know, mm. let's hide this a little bit, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Which happens in science <laughs> just, just as well, right? Yeah, I mean, it does. Uh, yeah. Um, we try to recreate something from existing literature. It just didn't work. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. should do. It's peer-reviewed. Mm. Yeah. This, no, could not be replicated. But that turned out to be our patent then because... Great, can't be replicated. Time for, ah. an, for an invention. Right. The failure created new possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. An opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. There you go. That's the thing. is, Case You point. can fail, but you'll fail twice if you don't learn from it. That's mm. right. Yeah. 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 Makes you more creative, I think. It's, Indeed. Um, yes, yeah. it does. Mm. Thank you, good humans. Thank I you. really enjoyed that conversation. Me yeah, too. me too. Yeah, yeah. You're happy with everything we covered off? Absolutely. Have another hour, please. <laughs> it's, it's great. Well, yeah. We can always follow up. Do this again, but away. Yeah. Thank you. Again. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Really you. nice to meet you. Hey, you too. Yeah.
That was Creative Welly, episode 33. Again, I've been DK. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Big shout out again to John O'Tucker, who produces the video version of this audio podcast. Check us out at creativewelly.com. But Jono, you can find him over at Empire Films. Big thanks to David, who hosts us at Flash Dog Studio. My name's been DK. Thank you again for your time and attention, and keep having courageous conversations with bold humans.